You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The hacks of the future are actually hacks that exist in the present day, but we just haven't paid enough attention to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me, as always, is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hi, Joe. Hi, Dave. As always, we've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, we welcome Charles Arthur, who's the author of a book titled Cyber Wars. And we are back. Uh, Joe, there was a story making the rounds this week. It was pretty much covered everywhere. Yep, had to I saw do, this one. <laughs> had to do with the President of the United States and comedian named John Melendez. Right. More popularly known as Stuttering John. Stuttering John from the Howard Stern Show. Right. So Stuttering John, John Melendez, had a previous relationship with... Donald Trump. Trump was a regular guest on the Howard Stern show. Right. Melendez said that he had spoken with Trump on numerous occasions over the phone before he was president. Right. They were familiar with each other. I don't know if they were buddies, but certainly acquaintances. So the story goes that Melendez uh, was going to record his podcast, had no guests and thought, well, let's try to call the president, called the White House switchboard as himself. And the White House said, I'm sorry, the president is not available. He's too busy. We're all making sense so far, right? Right. Yep. (laughs) So he calls. That's what happens every time I call the White House. (laughs) Absolutely. So Melendez calls back by his own description using a ridiculous British accent. Right. And as you know from last week's show, I'm a big fan of using ridiculous accents (laughs) to uh, for social engineering (laughs) scams. So. Calls using a ridiculous British accent, pretending to be a staffer for Senator Menendez. Senator Menendez is from New Jersey. Right. So we have Melendez and Menendez. Calls uh, to, to be the scheduler for Senator Menendez. And the White House operator asks, why were they calling from a number that they did not have on file? And Melendez said it was because the senator was on holiday, right? The first thing that happens is, hey, how come you're not calling from a proper number? Right. And uh, John comes up with an immediate explanation for that. Right. Plausible. Plausible. That uh, he's, he's away. He's on vacation and he's calling. Right. So according to the reports, the White House checked with the senator's office and the office confirmed that the senator had not actually made the call. But White House son-in-law Jared Kushner put the call through from Air Force One anyway, and Melendez had a conversation with the president. They talked about immigration and Supreme Court justices. Right. A pleasant call. Melendez, at no point in the call did he actually say he wasn't Menendez. Right. <laughs> the president called, assuming this is who he was talking to. But at no point in the time he did he say that he was Melendez. Correct. Right. right. He did not say, ah, he just, gotcha. He, didn't, he right. never revealed who he actually was. And he didn't say Baba Booey a bunch of times either. He did not say, <laughs> as far as I know, he did not say that. But uh, So the recording of the whole call is, is readily available. It's everywhere online. It's also on John Melendez's podcast, so check it out if you want to hear it there. He did say after the fact that he received a visit, and I'm presuming a stern talking to from the Secret Service for doing this. I I don't know technically there's anything illegal in what he did. There were no threats. Uh, Yeah, Uh, no threats, but he did misrepresent himself. Yeah, so I guess you could say maybe fraud. Maybe, Uh, yeah. I could see how the Secret Service wouldn't be... 
happy about this. But and on the other hand, you could say that they exposed uh, some weaknesses in the communications chain from the White House to the president. Yeah, so maybe you did him a little favor. It sounds like the switchboard did everything right. And then Kushner did an end run around the policies right. and the procedures and short circuited them and put the call through anyway. Sure. Yeah. And, and there's been lots of criticism of this president with his use of unsecured cell phones and yes, devices and, and so forth. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's an interesting tale. I think particularly the social engineering angle of this is just that calling uh, using a British accent, which I think as Americans, we tend to find uh, at the very least charming, but uh, often authoritative. Right? Well, yeah, but I mean, as Americans, shouldn't we be more suspicious of British accents? You'd think. I mean, it was just Independence Day, right? And, <laughs> you'd think, and yet we are not. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. But then also the thing about being on holiday. You know, a perfectly plausible. Yeah, perfectly a, a reasonable explanation. Yeah. So uh, interesting story. I suspect there's someone at the White House and coordinating with the Secret Service to do a better job of uh, making sure that these sorts of things don't happen again. Uh, let's hope so. <laughs> but congratulations to John Melendez for an excellent penetration test of the White House communication system. There you go. What story do you have this week, Joe? So my, my story is not nearly as lighthearted. Unfortunately, again, just, yeah, just like last week. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so uh, this story comes from Naked Security and the folks over at Sophos. Mm -hmm. The article starts with a story about a woman in the UK who's in her 70s. She's got a terminally ill husband mm. and she gets an email promising her 500,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. Right. And over time, it's obviously a scam email, right? So over time, the scammers bleed her for over 100,000 pounds, completely draining her life savings. Oh, no. Because she believes she's going to get this half a million pounds. And it doesn't really come to light until she goes to remortgage her house, which I assume was paid off. And now she's going to go get another mortgage because she thinks she's throwing part of the, I guess, the sunk cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. You know, I put a lot of money into this. I'm still going to get $500,000 out of it, right? They're or stringing her rather. along, presumably. Exactly. And then a solicitor, which is what they call a lawyer across the pond. It's like they've got a different word for everything. It is. Senses that something's up and good for the solicitor. He puts a stop to it and hmm. lets her know that she's being scammed. And the article brings up a, a few questions like, why didn't family or friends notice that she was under duress like this? Why didn't they know that she was sending money overseas, losing money? It just didn't come up. Why did it take a solicitor to find out that something this blatant was going on? Mm -hmm. And then the article asks, why did it only come out after the damage was done? I actually don't think all the damage was done. I just think some of the damage was done. I mean, it could have mm -hmm. been worse. She could have mortgaged her house and sent them that money too. Right. So it was stopped before it got worse, but not before a lot of money was sent cross. Yeah. So there's a company called Reassura in the UK who provides scam avoidance services. And they commissioned a professor named Mark Button at the University of Portsmouth to write up this article. And he, he said that 22% of those who are over the age of 65 are just unwilling to talk about their finances. It's just at all, just, at all, whether, they, whether there's a scam or not, whether even when things are good. Okay. But once they've been scammed, that number jumps up to 36%. Hmm. Because they're embarrassed to talk about it. And it becomes like this blemish on their on their psyches. That mm -hmm. It's almost like, how could I have been so stupid to have fallen for this? I, yeah, they're I don't embarrassed. Like, yeah, they're embarrassed. Exactly. And I completely understand this as well. But I think it's interesting that the scammers no doubt know this. That's part of why... They're going after folks like this. They're I less, think that's 100% correct. Less likely to be reported. Yep. And they can string them along uh -huh. and like in this case, slowly bleed them 
for uh, the money. So you have this sort of tailspin kind of thing for huge amounts of cash. This unwillingness to talk about being scammed is most likely leading to an unwillingness to report it, too. So these kind of crimes are probably going unreported. Because the people are embarrassed. Because the people are embarrassed to report it. Yeah. Don't want, they feel, after the fact, we hear this all the time, they feel stupid. Right. How they could say, I have been so stupid? Right. Right. How could I have fallen for this? Right. And, you know, it, people shouldn't feel this way. There is something out there that will get all of us. Yeah. You, know? you can understand the feeling, though. I, yeah. I certainly can. Sure. Not something you're going to go out and brag about that time when you got duped. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, but the point is, is that. Those of us who are helping look out for these sorts of folks, you know, we have, I have elderly parents, you right. have elderly parents in your family. We, yes, we it's, do. It's important to start these dialogues. Yeah, we actually had a conversation with uh, my in-laws and I asked if, if they've ever seen anything like that. And they had and they almost got scammed. If it mm. hadn't been for someone that they spoke to, they were in the process of sending money to somebody. And this person thankfully said, stop sending that. Don't do that. But it hasn't happened to my parents yet, but that's just because nobody's come in with the right trigger for them. Right. It's a concern. It's something I think about often. And, and uh, fortunately, I'd say probably every other week or so, I get an email from my father. It says, uh, you know, Dave, what do you think about this? Or should I reply to this? Right. So he's aware that they're out there. And it's good that he's checking with me first. And most of the time, the response is no, you know, no, do not, right. please do not reply. Bad idea. But yeah. Yeah. But having that, uh, those lines of communication open, boy, that's really important. All right, Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. So this week, our catch of the day comes from the Yorkshire and Humber Cyber Unit. I wonder if I'm pronouncing that correctly because it is British. And as we said earlier in the show, they have a different way of saying everything. <laughs> so uh, this is from Twitter. And uh, they said they received a fairly convincing phishing email from Twitter this morning. Said, if in doubt, go to the Twitter website, check your account, and change the password. Don't click on the links in the email. Uh, let's describe what is going on uh, with this. Okay. It says, first of all, there's the Twitter logo at the top of the image. Yep. It says, looks like there was a login attempt from a new device or location. Mm -hmm. All right, that's pretty routine. But here's the, here's where it gets good. It says, if this wasn't you. Secure your account by resetting your password now. Aha. Uh -huh. And below that, there's a button that says reset password. How convenient. Now, the thing is, odds are this wasn't you. Right. Right. <laughs> right. If the over because it's a scam, overwhelming odds are this wasn't you. Right. So you get this. You say, wait, that wasn't me. I better change my password right away. I better I better secure my account. Right. So you click the reset password button which I'm sure takes you to a site that looks like a Twitter login. It says, enter your current password right. first. Right. Yep. Yep. And Bob's your uncle. They yep. got you. They got you. Exactly. Now, it's interesting, too. It, it says, if this was you, please confirm your identity by using this temporary code on Twitter or wherever you might enter your Twitter password. That's a ruse. I, that's just noise, right? right. I mean, yep. there's nothing really that's going on That's to make it here. look, actually, it's not just noise. It's something to make it look more realistic, more, more convincing. But then at the bottom, here's the, uh, the cherry on top. Yes. It says, how do I know an email is from Twitter? Links in this email will start with HTTPS and contain, contain, Twitter.com. Your browser will also display a padlock icon to let you know a site is secure. Mm -hmm. So as we've talked about, HTTPS doesn't mean 
secure. Right. It means encrypted. S- encrypted. But right. It doesn't mean it means legit. The, it means yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It means the communication channel is secure. Right. So that an eavesdropper probably can't tell what's going on in the communication. And when I say probably, I mean can't tell. But they're taking advantage of that misunderstanding. Correct. That the padlock icon means everything's legit. That's right. And also it uh, it will contain the the string twitter.com. Right. I, I saw something incredibly smart the other day. Somebody registered a domain that started with com, right? Oh. So I could say com-joe.com. I could register that string. Okay. As th- that domain, com-joe or com-whatever. And then I create a subdomain called Twitter, right? On my own server, that is com-joe. So now if you look at the domain, it'll say twitter.com-joe.com. Right. That would look to the casual observer like twitter.com. Mm-hmm. Right. It contains what they said it's going to contain. It does. And it looks, it, it could even go HTTPS colon slash slash twitter.com. Mm-hmm. And if you don't look beyond to dash joe.com, then you might think there's twitter.com. That's where I'm going. So several ways to trick you into thinking that it's secure when it's actually not. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, it's uh, something to look out for. Classic ruse here trying to uh, gather up your password for Twitter. And then once they've got it, they own you. Right. All right. So that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Charles Arthur. He is the author of Cyber Wars, Hacks That Shocked the Business World. And we are back. Uh, Joe, I recently had the opportunity to speak with Charles Arthur. He is the writer of the book Cyber Wars, Hacks That Shocked the Business World. Interesting conversation. Here's my talk with Charles Arthur. I've been looking around for a book idea, and I had a few ideas in my mind about what I wanted to do. My publishers contacted me and said, would you like to write a book about hacking? And they had a suggestion about looking at uh, big hacks. So I had to think about it and uh, came up with a list of seven or eight of things that I thought were important, hacks that were illustrative about the sort of problems that uh, people and organizations have and which would catch people's attention or which would already caught people's attention, which I thought would... Uh, um, be useful to know about. Yeah, and the, the book does go into depth into certainly some of the well-known high-profile hacks, the Sony hack, the TalkTalk hack, Mirai, uh, ransomware, things like that. What I want to focus on today with you are some of the hacks that involved social engineering. You have a, a chapter in your book about John Podesta and how his Gmail account was hacked. Can you tell us that story? What happened there? Sure. So John Persester was the chairman for Hillary Clinton's campaign. And the campaign had been aware that they might be the target of hackers. They weren't sure what sort of origin those might be, but a lot of people obviously would want to hack into a political campaign. The Hillary Clinton campaign had actually protected their emails, uh, their email accounts with two-factor authentication, which means that not only do you have to have the username and the password, but you also have to, when you try to log in, you have to type in a code, a six-digit code, which is generally automatically by a program or sent to you by a text message. John Podesta's personal inbox, though, 
did not have two-factor authentication turned on. And so one morning, while he was actually over in California, there were a number of people from the campaign who monitored his inbox because that was, in effect, one of the various different nexuses uh, for information flowing through the campaign. They got an email which appeared to be from Google, which said, someone has your password. They've been trying to log in from, they named an Eastern European country. You should go and protect your account now. There was um, a bit of mild panic within the campaign headquarters. It was early on a Saturday morning, and it ended up with someone going to this phishing page, as it turned out to be, and entering in his credentials, which meant that all of his emails from the past and into the future were now open to the hackers and uh, meant that they could basically strip mine his entire email. Um, they did this. Uh, they kept on monitoring it. It meant also that they had access to other elements that he had connected to that email. So his iCloud account um, had a recovery email there, and they could also get into that. And so they were able at their leisure to pass on these emails to people who might be uh, hostile to Hillary Clinton, which includes uh, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. And that meant that when uh, late in November or October, there was a, uh, a tumultuous day, really, in terms of the 2016 presidential election, when first the FBI said that there were efforts by Russians to hack the election, and then the Washington Post broke a story about Donald Trump and uh, an Access Hollywood tape about basically assaulting women. At the uh, sort of later in the afternoon of that day, Julian Assange released the first tranche of these John Podesta emails. So for a media trying to look at what story to fixate on. There was more than enough to think about. Um, but the John Podesta emails were trickled out over time and had a sort of drip-drip effect on uh, people's uh, thoughts about uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign. And so just to be clear, I mean, the, the message that they got, it was not an actual email from Google. It wasn't actually from Google. It was rather cleverly disguised. It said, someone has your password. And I suspect that Google has um, has methods in place to trap emails which say that. But this email had a Unicode character so that the, the O in password looks like an O, if you, especially if you view it on an iPhone. But if you view it in different fonts, then you can see that it's actually not a normal English O. It's a Unicode character, which looks like that. But uh, I think it was chosen after some experimentation by the hackers to get through filters such as Google would set up. Was the success of this phishing email dependent on the fact that Podesta did not have two-factor enabled? Like 90% of people, uh, he did not have two-factor enabled. If he had had it enabled at that time, it would have been much more difficult, not impossible, but much more difficult for the hackers to have uh, captured and broken into his email. There are ways that you can get around people having two-factor authentication. You can set up a page which asks for the code, but you can't automate it. And the thing that people who are doing phishing like to do is they like to automate the process so that they can capture lots and lots of login details. Capturing two-factor authentication is much harder because you have to capture a code as it's generated. You then have to log into the real page with that code. And then you have to go in and uh, generate your own codes to be able to access the account afterwards. And Google will always warn you about uh, extra logins that it gets and where it thinks that they look a bit peculiar. Google has many systems running in the back end that you don't see. Another one of the chapters in your book covers the story of HB Gary, which is a security company that had a run in with Anonymous. And there were some social engineering factors in that story as well. 
That's true, yes. H.B. Uh, Gary had a guy who reckoned that he had figured out the names of the people at the top of Anonymous, which is a sort of slightly strange idea because Anonymous, especially at this time in 2011, was very much a freeform collective, which didn't have anyone leading it. It, it was more a sort of a, a large crowd which collected on the effectively a streetcar on the internet and uh, tried to decide what direction to run in. So the idea that he had found the identities of various people people seemed a bit ridiculous. And also to Anonymous, it, it was a bit insulting, but also a bit threatening because many of them were you know, hackers in one way or another. And they didn't like the idea that their personal details might possibly, if he was correct, be out there. So Aaron Barr, which is the guy's name, Aaron uh, became the target of a very concerted attack by some people from Anonymous uh, to break into the HP Gary account, his personal accounts, and so on. And they managed to do part of that. I mean, the, the initial break into the HP Gary systems was using a method called SQL injection, which relies on weaknesses in databases to uh, allow access to a server. But when they were trying to break into the systems for the parent company, what they did was get access to the uh, email systems by calling the support line for the email and pretending to be someone who had forgotten their password and asking for a password reset uh, so that they could log in. And because they had looked at some of the previous emails from the subsidiary company, they were able to give a tolerably good uh, impersonation of the person who would have actually been looking to get the logins. You have to say that a lot of the failing there was on the part of the support line. They should have been uh, a bit more suspicious. Um, but of course, the thing about support lines is they're there to give support. And if you don't get support, then you tend to get a bit uh, antsy. So there's always a difficult line to tread for them. Now, in the research that you did for the book, in the process of writing it, what were some of the takeaways for you for organizations looking to defend themselves against social engineering? Are, are there any lessons to be learned here? The principal takeaway that I found, and the thing I found most surprising initially, but which has changed since, is the low value that companies put on the data of the customers that they have. So uh, I looked at a British uh, internet service provider called TalkTalk, which was uh, hacked and lost uh, about 160,000 people's details, names, addresses, birthdays, addresses, email addresses, bank details. All this was lost and they were fined by the UK Information Commissioner's Office uh, £400,000, which sounds a lot initially, but actually it's about £2.50 per person. And um, you know, the people who, had, who were hacked didn't get any benefit from that and all their personal details were now out on the net. By contrast, TalkTalk was fined £5 million by the communications regulator was for overbilling about 50,000 people. And the contrast between the giant fine for overbilling and the tiny fine for losing people's data struck me as, as the key imbalance that exists between the customer in terms of their data and the customer in terms of service. But that's all changing now, especially in Europe, where the introduction of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, means that companies can be fined up to 20 million euros or 4% of their annual global turnover, which can be very large amounts indeed. In the case of TalkTalk, Talk, it would have been around 60 million pounds. So I think that 
the lessons are that actually the big fines are coming and therefore companies need to be looking much more about the safeguards they have around their customer data and even whether they're holding too much data. I think a lot of companies have gotten into the habit of getting data, holding data just because they can. They don't know why they're going to use it. They just think that having more is better. But the lesson is that in general, you are going to be hacked at some point. It might be big, it might be small, but you are going to get hit. So you need to have less data there than you might otherwise uh, have if you weren't going to get hacked. The information commissioner in giving evidence to the UK parliament said, some people say data is the new oil, you know, that everyone's going to make money off it. But he suggested maybe you should think of data as the new asbestos, potentially toxic to your company. <laughs> and I think that's a, an important lesson that companies should learn. And if you have the expectation that you're going to be hacked, then you should start to set up rings of trust within the company. Your most valuable data is behind multiple rings of trust. Your less valuable data is behind fewer rings of trust. And you have to expect that people are going to get in and you have to try to minimize the effect there will be, especially on your most valuable data, when they do get in. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that we're playing off of that very real human factor that people want to be helpful. So that creates a vulnerability there. That's absolutely the case. I mean, you know, the social engineering aspect of hacking is one of the oldest, one of the most trusted uh, and most <laughs> reliable in many ways. You know, if it's not the support line, then it's uh, someone at the telephone company or it's just the person who's operating the, uh, the system at the time. You can make the computer completely fail safe, but if in the end you have people who are able to access the data, then one way or another, the data is accessible. And there's always a way of persuading people by phone means or foul to uh, to hand over that data the thing that i found most surprising when i was researching this book was how old a lot of these techniques are i mean you know social engineering is basically conning people that's you know as pretty much as old as as humans and languages if you're trying to figure out what the hacks of the future will look like then what you want to do is to look at academic papers now in terms of hacking what they're suggesting might be uh, weaknesses and just throw that forward and expect to see that in sort of 2030 the hacks of the future are actually hacks that exist in the present day, but we just haven't paid enough attention to. That's a great interview, Dave. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Two takeaways from this for me right away. One, fishing works mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it works well. And two, so does two-factor authentication. Charles talks about how difficult it would be to hack into somebody's account when they have two-factor authentication, that it's not impossible. But I've talked about this before, I think on the CyberWire podcast, where I talk about the multiplicity of difficulty. Just getting your password has some kind of difficulty factor. And if I make it more difficult by adding a two-factor authentication methodology to it, even with just a text code, which may not be the most secure way of performing two-factor authentication, it makes it much more difficult for an attacker to get into your account. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're being targeted by a nation state actor or somebody who's focused entirely on getting your password, yeah, maybe two-factor authentication might not be the best protection. And if you think that's the case, then text messaging is not the best way. It's best to go with a time-based key and a secret seed. But even that could be socially engineered around. If I can get you to give me that, then guess what? I'm, I'm in. 
But for these automated processes, which is what the vast majority of people need to worry about, something as simple as a text message is probably adequate to get them through the day. It's interesting when you look at the, what he was talking about with the Clinton campaign, right. that they had multi-factor on everything but this one account. Yeah, on, on Podesta's account. And it was a high-value account, and they got in, and that was the ball game. I also like his statement, data is the new asbestos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that too. <laughs> That's good. I like thinking of it as, as maybe, uh, if you think of your data as being radioactive. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, handle, it, <laughs> handle it as such, you know? Right, right. You don't want to keep too much of it around. You could hit critical mass and bad things could happen. Right. <laughs> Get rid of it. There's no reason to keep it around. I really enjoyed my conversation with Charles R. Arthur. Again, the title of the book is Cyber Wars, Hacks That Shocked the Business World. Our thanks to Charles Arthur for joining us for today's show. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about what they're up to at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm David Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.